So welcome to Behind the Mirror, a place where students in an online program can get all the little things you can only get by sitting behind the mirror with your professors. Today I have Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, who is the uh, developer and I guess head influencer, if you want to use that title, of We Heart Therapy, which is one of the, um, I think it's one of the really cool innovations that we have in counseling these days. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. But before that, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about your personal journey. How long have you been practicing for? Um, so I've only been licensed a couple years. And I mean, if you count the journey of working towards my license and internships and extra training, I mean, I've probably in the, been in the therapist seat for probably like five years. Um, and I, I don't know that I, it wasn't obvious to me, I guess, about being a therapist. I was always interested in psychology, but I was also interested in photography and journalism and I didn't really know what I wanted to study. So um, I had gotten married to my high school sweetheart and uh, that didn't work out. <laughs> so and I was kind of going through that quarter life crisis and I was top of my class in high school and I'd been accepted to some honors programs, but you know, a lot of the paperwork fell through and stuff. So I just took advantage and uh, decided to go back to school and I got my bachelor's degree and I'd taken a course on psychotherapy and I fell in love with it. And I thought, okay, I've got to pick something that I enjoy enough to go all the way with because, <laughs> you know, there's going to be some classes you have to take that you don't really care so much about <laughs> and some and some classes that are completely amazing and enthralling. So I picked psychology and then I minored in marriage and family therapy in my bachelor's degree. And it was through that that I figured, I, I think, you know, since I had also been through a divorce and I grew up in a Christian household and that I was the poster child for, you know, a good Christian marriage and then to have one end was also a, you know, a spiritual crisis. So I wanted to take, you know, a lesson, something negative that happened in my life and turn it into a way to help others. So that was how I kind of came to marriage counseling, I guess. <laughs> That's quite a journey. Yeah. <laughs> I think you see that so often with people who are in this field that there is something um, about it that resonates with them on a deep personal level. Right. Whether they had somebody who was, who was their counselor, who was really impactful or, um, you know, trying to figure something out for themselves or just whatever it is. People come to this field because it resonates with us. Yeah. And it's not easy work. I mean, it, it seems easy from afar. Oh, you just sit in a chair and you talk to people about their problems. Oh my gosh, it is exhausting work. And to get that up close and personal with somebody's life, especially if they've had trauma and, you know, I'm not somebody who's ever wanted to specialize in trauma or addiction, even though I did my um, practicum in my undergrad in an addiction center, because obviously those are the easiest to get into. But um you know, it finds your way into your practice regardless because there's always somebody that struggles with it. So you really need to be prepared and trained anyway. <laughs> yeah. I feel like people who, um, well, I think that that's true. And I think it's even more true when it comes to couple work. I mean, I think regardless, I honestly think that couple work is the hardest type of therapy. 
Yes. Even more than addiction, even more than fear. I think it really is just the hardest. Yeah. And you know, Sue Johnson described um, or related that she had heard couple therapy described to trying to pilot a helicopter through a tornado. (laughs) And sometimes (laughs) that's what it feels like. (laughs) You know, with one person, it's like you just have an alliance that has to be built with one person and it's easier to contain you know, if they were to escalate or get upset, but now you have two people and, and with every couple, you know, it's, it's rare that two people will agree on the same experience. You know, (laughs) most people, you know, and this is even just beyond romantic relationships, brothers and sisters can grow up in the same household and have two fundamentally different memories of the same events. And I think that's just a human thing, but you have to find a way to hold two truths and build an alliance with two people, which is really tough. And, you know, it's hard because some models of counseling are very pathologizing. And when you kind of have the pathology, you know, where you diagnose one person, the identified patient, even as a couple, the couple's the relationship, but you're still combing through who's got the personality disorder, then it completely invalidates one person's experience and makes it hard for the therapist to stay in the empathy window. As soon as you start diagnosing somebody's partner as a narcissist or borderline personality, you've also made it harder for yourself as a therapist to work with them because you have to build an alliance with two people. And narcissists and borderlines don't exactly have the best reputations. And if you suspect one partner is yeah. Into one of those categories, it's going to be hard for you to build that alliance with them. Yeah. You're touching on something that is so um, relevant because I'm also teaching, you know, I teach several courses. I'm teaching our DSM course now. And one of the big questions that we have to, that I have students answer is like, how do you diagnose? You know, and should MFTs diagnose or should you not? And I think that you're bumping up against probably the second biggest issue when it comes to diagnosis, and as, which is how it, how it affects me and my view of the client. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's so true. And you know, the DSM wasn't designed for therapists. It was designed for psychiatrists using the medical model so that they could medicate. You know, and psychiatrists are medical doctors. They're not therapists, they're medical doctors. They go the whole gamut to med school and then they decide to specialize in mental health. But they're dealing with the most extreme cases, people that need to be diagnosed and, you know, are hospitalized. And then in the more recent years, you know, people who have the worried well, who have taken advantage of the prescription pills and such, but it definitely, now that therapists are using it more and more, it definitely can impact the therapist's view of their client, which therapists don't realize if you can't empathize with the client, it's going to be really hard to, to help treat them because you're treating a human being, not a disorder. And even if they have a disorder, you have to find a way to come alongside them. Yeah. Pathologies tend to really dehumanize the pain that one person's going through because we're labeling it in a box. Oh, this person's narcissist. Oh, this person's borderline personalities or, Oh, they're so hard to work with. Well, they didn't get there by themselves, (laughs) you know, I mean, you say that, and I mean, I've, I've literally never thought about this, and so I'm like enthralled. Um, but you say that, and 
honestly, I, I think of the DSM mostly as a way to get reimbursed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the question that I keep having is how can a therapist not mm -hmm. um, view, person, view a person as a disorder mm -hmm. when that's what we're doing? Right. Right. I mean, the way that I think about it, I, I usually think about, okay, given what I know about this person and their history, and part of my intake process is a, is a, is a, a trauma history, given what I know about them and their history, how does what they're doing now make sense? That's a completely different lens than, right. well, they have this disorder, let me treat this disorder. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I never thought about it in that way, but yeah, like it kind of is inherently pathologizing. Yeah, and I love what you're saying about um, how does that disorder impact who they are now? And, you know, it, really the disorder is not the disease. The disorder is the symptom. It really is the symptom. And, you know, you talked about how what they do makes sense. And that's exactly, so I'm an attachment therapist. So emotionally focused therapy. Yes, I drank the Kool-Aid and believe me, it's legit. Like there, it's the gold standard. There is research on it. I'm sorry it blows Gottman out of the way. <laughs> but, you know, it's based in a well-researched theory that's been proven over and over and over. I know researchers hate that word, proven. Oh, my God. But, yes, we have demonstrated that it does all come back to attachment. And... You know, when you look at clients that have trauma, when you look at clients that have borderline personality disorder, or any personality disorder, there's always an attachment break. Always. 1,000%. Narcissists, always an attachment break. And when you can learn to see the person, and I have some fabulous videos on my channel. So I have a series. So my channel is called We Heart Therapy. And I have a series called EFT Talk where I interview other trainers um, and experts in emotionally focused therapy. And I have a few that work in agency settings and they talk about, so you have a client with schizophrenia, come alongside them, right? So what if you there believe- trainers who work in agency settings? Uh-huh. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. What? Absolutely, and it's amazing because it, they really, See, to me, EFT therapists are masters of empathy because through the attachment lens, everything makes sense. And you find that all human beings have the same fundamental need to be loved, to be accepted, to feel important to somebody. And when they haven't had that, it impacts behavior and emotions. And a lot of people, I think master's programs do a ter terrible job at educating folks about attachment theory because they think it's just about bonding. Actually, it's a lot more than that. It's a theory of emotion regulation and emotion regulation shows up in behavior. So the, it's a trifecta, you know, attachment, you know, bonding impacts emotions and it impacts behavior. So you got the three working together and, you know, the way you, you have a person in your office, even if they have schizophrenia or an addiction come alongside the person. So they're struggling and this is how their behavior shows up according to the DSM. But, you know, what if you believed them, you know, the, the schizophrenic that has these voices? What if you talk to them about the voices? What do the voices tell you to do? You know, believe them. If they believe, if they feel believed, you'd be surprised how much it can impact their emotions and their behavior. 
there's so many ways that we can go and I really want to stay super focused. My <laughs> model of this, I think might be one of your best friends. Which I, don't know, I don't know if you guys are actually best friends, but yeah. you know pretty well. Rebecca Jorgensen. Yes. Wonderful. Yes, she is one of my mentors. Yeah. I've been watching her uh, video series and she gets really, like stupid focused. Like you could not... She yeah. will let you talk for 20 minutes and she, she knows exactly where she's still going. It's incredible. I know. That's what I'm trying to learn that from her. She's really good at, at anchoring. You know, she hangs on to what she was after with the couple or with the individual. And they may meander off the path, but she's able to bring them back to that anger point. And it's amazing where the rest of us, like our ADD is already like, whoa, <laughs> I'm lost. <laughs> but yeah, she's amazing. And we've done quite a few videos. And in fact, uh, Rebecca Jorkinson and I, along with Rory Reed from UCLA, Dr. Rory Reed, developed uh, the competing attachment scale. My, my dissertation research was on, um, was on competing attachment in romantic relationships. So together uh, with the two of them, we developed a scale to measure or capture the presence of competing attachment in romantic relationships, which comes out of EFT. So no surprise, I did an EFT research topic. <laughs> yeah. What, kind, what type of things did you find as, attach, as competing attachment um, figures? Uh, well, competing attachment is anything a person turns to outside of their relationship for comfort, soothing, escape, to get their attachment um, needs met, to regulate their emotions. And they're turning to this other thing and not their partner in a way that it creates distress in the relationship. And we're not talking about like hobbies and stuff or having friends. We're talking like, like anything else that you even find in the DSM, it's to a more extreme where it's causing distress. You know, if a person just has friends and healthy boundaries are maintained, that's probably not going to cause distress in the relationship or somebody likes to, you know, play video games here and there. It's probably not going to cause distress in the relationship, but you know, you have couples where one partner may come home and they're gone for hours on their video games, hours and hours. And you have their partner begging and begging and begging, please come be with me. Please come be with me. And their partner's like just another five minutes and three hours later, you know, and this is a regular routine or affair partners. Some affair partners, um, usually it only takes one time to create a disruption, but sometimes um, emotional affairs are more damaging than sexual affairs. Um, and that would be someone turning to an affair partner to get their needs for love and comfort and attachment met and not their partner. Um, it could be addiction. It could be work. It could be intrusive family members. You have People complaining that their spouse turns to their mother or their father for their opinion before they turn to their other for their opinion, and that can be really hurtful. So it feels like I'm not coming to you. I don't care about your opinion. They're more important than you, and that's really distressing. So it can take on a variety of forms. Yeah. Man. I can um, already run through all the scenarios. I have a, I have a buddy who works with poly couples. Um, and I've, I've always wondered how that would, how, how would you, I mean, and I realize that I'm really ignorant of this, right? Yeah. Um, but to have multiple romantic partners and involved in a relationship, have you seen any research on that? Is that? 
Um, I haven't seen any research on it. It's something we talk about in EFT a lot because there are folks, especially in San Francisco, that specialize in this, and it seems to be really common in the LGBTQ community. Um, I, I'm sorry I don't have the research on it, but um, usually when you find people that have multiple you know, polyamorous relationships, there, again, is an attachment break. <laughs> That's causing them to feel like they can't limit, limit, in their minds it's limiting, but it's really that lack of safety of relying on just one person to meet their needs. And clearly it means they don't trust that one person to meet their needs. They think they're going to get bored or they could get rejected or something. So they scatter it around among several people. But I have had clients where, you know, in Las Vegas, we have a lot of sex workers. And I've had people, married couples, who were in adult entertainment businesses and had open sexual behavior. But they, ironically, I've had a few come in for affairs. And where the break is, if they both agree that certain behavior is okay outside the relationship, then that's not a breach of, of the boundary, because an affair is a breach of a boundary. So you could have an open relationship, but then one person maybe starts to develop an emotional attachment for somebody they've had sex with. Suddenly now that's a breach of, you know, their agreement of the boundaries in the relationship. And voila, you have an affair within an open relationship. So that's how it happens. <laughs> and, you know, ironically, it's like involves the couple doesn't have a great secure um, attachment frame but it does require, I guess, a lot of numbness and a lot of, it's hard to do an open relationship. It really is. You have to have very clear boundaries, but um, even though there's a lack of boundaries at the same time, it's a very dichotomous, <laughs> paradoxical relationship dynamic. So okay. <laughs> you're, it was like, you're going cross-eyed over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's complicated. It sounds very complicated. It's something that, you know, I'm ignorant about. And I think it's something that, um, in a way, is becoming more known about. But mm -hmm. I think it's still not close. Like, there's, there's, there's just not that... Right. It's not that big, right? It's right. becoming to be well-known about. I feel like it's right. in that. But it's still not something that's a very... Not right. that many people proportionally are involved in those sorts of relationships. Not that much research is done on it. Uh, so yeah, it's just it's kind of a very different arena. It is, and it's largely impacted by society, societal norms, yeah. what we find acceptable. It definitely has come out of the shadows, but you know, and society is trying really hard to rip apart the frame of the family. And this, you can do it by yourself, and you can you can even have kids by yourself. You don't need a spouse. You don't even need a partner. Just go to the sperm bank and get a donor and do it all alone. Yeah. We weren't wired to do it that way, you know. I mean, yes, can people survive? Can they do it? Sure. Is their quality of life going to be great? No. And we do have research on that because people are higher in stress, lower in connection, higher depression, more rates of disconnection quality of life and satisfaction is going way down. I mean, we weren't meant to do this stuff alone. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. We need to think about what's best for us. And that's why bonding, 
was wired into us neurologically, physiologically, psychologically, hardwired into human beings. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're obviously much more versed on the attachment research, um, but I do think that it is very obvious and the researchers are very clear on how we're becoming more isolated, mm -hmm. we trust less, and it is literally killing us. Yes. You know? Um, and it's, it's a very weird sort of social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We are so isolated. I mean, I think this has never happened in, in the history of the planet, probably mm -hmm. because you just couldn't travel that far away from people, right? <laughs> like, right. Mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm, you know, 18 hours away from my mom and my sister and my dad, right? You could, I mean, you'd have to like, that would just never happen in the past. Mm -hmm. Unless you got on a boat and you went to a whole new place. Yeah, we went away from the community mentality to yeah. a more individualistic pursuit of self. And this absolutely shows up in the therapy room with my couples. And, and I do truly believe that Vegas is also an extra special it's an extra special breed of chaos. <laughs> um, I think whatever problems exist in most communities is just amplified tenfold here. But I find when couples come in, very much their attitude towards marriage is my partner should please me and I should please me. And that's a recipe for failure. People, yeah, people get into relationships to serve themselves and they wonder why it fails. And then they blame marriage. The institute of marriage is broken. No, it's not, in fact. It's marriage in itself is just a legal protection for the person you love and you've committed to spend your life with. If you really love somebody that much and want to spend your life, why would you not want to offer them legal protection so that if something bad happened to you, they were taken care of? It's a no-brainer. And I love how they say it's just a piece of paper. Well, clearly that's not true, because if it was just a piece of paper, you'd have no big deal signing it. Oh, but people also think that marriage is going to be this catch-all protection. Like, as soon as I get married, it, the, the act of marriage itself just somehow magically infuses us with happiness, and we have no problems. Marriage is not broken. It's broken people entering into marriage expecting marriage in and of itself to fix them or make things magically better without them having to do the work. And people are lazy. All of this self-gratification, instant gratification is killing our society. And people even want that in therapy. There's more pressure to have short-term outcomes to heal me now, fix me now. If you're not making me feel better when I walk out this door, then I don't want to come back and see you. And that's really hard. And this will hit you hard as a therapist because your clients will come back the next session and they'll say, I felt terrible last week after our session. And the therapist is going to be like, oh my God, I'm failing. No, they're not coming into your office to talk about sunshine and rainbows. And you've got to remind them that we're here to talk about the hard stuff, the stuff that isn't working. So yes, we're going to stir the pot. Some stuff is going to rise to the top. And when you can tell them in advance, I tell them in the intake, then you set them up, you let them know the process and then it becomes predictable and what's predictable is safe. <laughs> right. So it's all about making it clear. And I always tell them plan some kind of self care for after our sessions, because sometimes you will walk out of here really stirred up, go do yoga after, go out to a nice dinner, watch a fun movie, something just to help you guys relax and have fun. But be prepared. Yeah. Yeah.
So I want to um, go back to something you said a little earlier too, was that your YouTube station. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get involved in that? Well, I just created it one day. <laughs> it's my channel. So we heart therapy. I wanted to do I heart therapy, but I think that was, that was already taken. So I did we heart therapy and I thought, well, this could be we, the collective us of therapists that we heart therapy. Um, so it's just kind of a fun thing. And I have two series on there, two major series. I have one that I did that's called Your Guide to Therapy and Coaching. And in that series, that series specifically is meant for the general public. And I interviewed a bunch of different therapists across a bunch of different models um, so that people knew when they're shopping for a therapist, they know exactly what the therapist means when they're looking at the description and they say, oh, I do this kind of therapy or I do that kind of therapy. So they know exactly what that means and what the different types are. So then maybe they can pick somebody based on that and, you know, gives them a little bit of an idea of what to expect the therapy to be like. And I did a video explaining what the letters behind a therapist means because, you know, even in today's age, most of us see the same demographics anyway, you know. In a lot of states, no matter what your license is, you can see couples, you can see individuals, you can see addicts. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter a whole lot, but people get confused and they want to know the difference. So I did a video on that. And then I have my other series, the EFT Talk series, which is specifically for other therapists trying to learn emotionally focused therapy. And I just interview trainers. And initially it was so that I could get more answers to my questions. Because <laughs> you could literally go broke on training. You so I thought, can. well, maybe there's a way that I can turn this into a win for everybody. So I just started asking trainers and they all agreed. And I think I have over 23 videos already done and more in the pike. And um, so, yeah, I, I get my questions answered. The other population of EFT therapists get some more free training and the trainers get to introduce themselves to the community and promote their own work. Cause there's a lot of trainers that, are kind of stuck on their side of the states. And so a lot of therapists don't even know that they exist. They don't know what trainings they have to offer and that they can even invite them to come out to their area. So it also helps me get the word out. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think that you're right. I, I initially ran across your stuff. I think Wesley Little posted something about a video that you did with um, George Fowler. Yes, I know and, Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> Wesley is one, Wesley, I mean, she likes Karen Bristol's blog, and Karen is really good. Yeah, she has I a find, blog. I find Wesley so precise. Yes. In, 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 in her blog, and so it's so helpful for me personally. Mm -hmm. um, but, and anyway, so yeah, Wesley is great. If anyone's listening, please check out her blog. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, George George Fowler, and talking with talking about highly escalated pursuers, I was saying. Yep, highly that video escalated. was incredible. Like it yeah. really was really good. Yeah. Did you talk about anger, which freaks out most therapists? Yeah. Yeah, and how he works with that. And I've seen George work. He's really he's yeah. a, he's one of the real deals. He's a no nonsense kind of guy. He's a New Yorker, and he used to be a fireman. He worked. He started becoming a therapist right around nine eleven. So he worked with his 
you know, former comrades to do counseling and therapy and to help out all the forces at the time. So he, he's really, and we're actually having him back here in Vegas to do another masterclass and he's excellent. I'm going to do another video with him in a couple weeks. So. Oh man, that's going to be, yeah. what are you guys going to be talking about? Working with emotion. Working with emotion, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you just asked trainers and you said, hey, can I interview you? And I'll put it up on, online. And they said yes. Yep, basically. And I, you know, tell them we're just, it's very conversational and it gives you more exposure. And at the end, you get to promote your books or your trainings or your written material, which is a win for them, you know. And, and honestly, each EFT trainer has a special niche. And because none of our clients, I mean, you find that a lot of their problems are generally the same, but because personalities are so diverse, you pick up some of the languaging from each of the different therapists and there's each of them just has something that really fits for you. So it's so helpful to me to learn from the variety of trainers and it just helps me continue to grow and meet the diverse needs of my clients. So, yeah, I think that's so true. That's so true. I've, um, it's, it's even weird seeing, you know, someone like, um, I had a training with Jim. I mean, with, um, George, and then I had training with, oh, I can't remember his name. He's out in Tennessee. And he's like this older gentleman, uh, very soft spoken. You're not talking about Michael Barnett, are you? Michael Barnett. He, this, this he's trainer, I can see his face. Kenny, Kenny Sanford. Hmm. Uh, I'm not familiar with Kenny. Oh, man. But this, just the dichotomy between George, who's yeah. mm -hmm. very much a New Yorker, <laughs> mm -hmm. and Kenny is this, you know, soft-spoken grandpa sort of figure and to say yeah they're they're both doing really good work with EFT mm -hmm. it really broadens what you mm -hmm. have as like models to like you know yeah. work from yeah well I mean when you need the more warm fuzz you might go to this therapist you know this trainer's languaging when you need the no-nonsense like George you know I have a lot of really old-school manly men that don't do emotions they were never taught about it they swear they don't even have them <laughs> and they, they're like what emotions i don't have those <laughs> so it's so foreign to them and i have to find a way to relate to them and if they think that i don't get them and i'm just trying to force something on them then i'm gonna lose them so yeah man so um have you like how how far are you taking this? Like are you obviously know um, Wesley. Like are you? Do you consider yourself an influencer? Do you consider yourself just the person who's learning? Like what's your, what's your president and director of the Las Vegas community for emotionally focused therapy? And it's really hard to get a therapeutic community off the ground. It's a lot of work. I can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> And people in Vegas aren't exactly joiners, not the therapists, not, not the general public. I don't know what it is, but um, yeah. So I'm just a learner and I'm out to help other people grow and continue on their journey. I'm never going to stop learning. And I think that's the thing about EFT is because you realize as it helps you make sense of people's behavior and people's actions, it really invigorates you and gives you hope, especially because it gives you a very explicit step-by-step uh, -step plan of action for your trajectory of therapy from beginning to end and a map within your session. So you always know where you're at. So knowing that, it really just sparks this fire inside of you. It says, wow, I could actually be a really amazing therapist. And 
you, it's interesting as you notice your own skill set changing. So will the you know degree of your clients. You'll start getting the really complex clients come in. The more you know experienced you get, so it's just inspires this constant thirst to learn and to help people. And so, yeah, I don't know where God may bring me. You know, I'd certainly would like to be a trainer, but I've always had an interest in uh, doing media. And, uh, you know, I thought being a professional interviewer would actually be a whole lot of fun. So, (laughs) so who knows, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I'm right now I'm working on a couple books and we'll see. What's your, what's your caseload like? I mean, you oh, must just be slammed. I'm in the office four days a week, and I, gosh, I may go in at 10 or 11 in the morning and not come out until 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and it's back to back to back. So, What are you, what are you writing? What am I writing? I'm writing a book on empathy, how to help therapists empathize with difficult and challenging and resistant clients. Yeah. And how do you have time for that? I mean, if you're working from 10 to 8. In the few, you know, I bought an iPad Pro with a keyboard, and so I thought the few minutes that I might get here and there between clients, I'll be able to put down some thoughts because I get a lot of thoughts inspired by my clients. And uh, I'm also trying to work on a devotional for therapists so because they're often helping to recharge everyone else's soul and their hearts and their minds and who's recharging theirs. Yeah. So. <laughs> you, might, you might want to look into Kenny. Kenny, Kenny and Sue wrote uh, Creative for Connection. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I do know that. I do know that series. Yeah. That's the yeah, Christian version of Hold Me Tight. Yeah, it's yeah, excellent. I'll have to check that out. Um, so how long did it take you to get certified? Um... Well, I, I guess it didn't take me that long, but only because I made a very concerted effort to get it done. You know, if you want to get it done and you work hard on it, it doesn't have to take that long at all. I took my externship in like 2013. So it's been like six years now. Uh, I did my advanced training in... 2014, 2015, and I used my internship in my doctoral program to work towards uh, certification. So the whole length of the internship process in my doctoral program was like nine months. So I used that to work towards certification. So, and I was able to get it by the end. So I guess that's it. It's a really rigorous process, but it's completely worth it if only to become a better therapist because it makes you really focus on the model, clean up the steps and stages and really hone in on, on what you're doing as a therapist, making sure you're truly sticking to the model. And what I love about EFT is, you know, it really is a holistic model. A lot of people, when they get nervous, they fall back on old models and strategies um, when they lose their footing and then they pop out of EFT and, you know, the outcome studies aren't based on doing a sprinkle of this, a sprinkle of that. It's adherence to the to EFT itself. And EFT already has Rogerian therapy built into it. It already has Gestalt therapy built into it. A lot of people don't realize that it already has these things like somatic experiencing, 
A lot of these are already built into the model. And so if you get stuck, you don't have to go to another model. You just have to, you know, do some work as a therapist to find out, okay, where am I stuck in the model? You, the model has all the answers. You just have to be willing to find it. So it's not the model that gets broken. It's just, you know, you might be stuck in a place, hit your glass ceiling, and it might require more training or some supervision or you know, just in, sometimes clients will reveal spots where you didn't know you were stuck and you're like, wait a second, I just, I can't seem to wrap my mind around this. What does the model say how to help with this? And then you go back to the model and, you know, it, it's really amazing. Yeah, it sounds like you're, you're pretty consistent on working on improving. What are you doing now? Are you still in supervision? Are you still, um, I don't know, watching tapes? Are you still doing something? Yeah. Else? Absolutely. I mean, I, I coordinate trainings all the time. I make sure that I attend trainings regularly just to keep myself fed. And in EFT, we're watching tapes. We, we record our own therapy, our, our own sessions and that we're showing, and we may play the tape for another therapist to get a consultation like, hey, I'm stuck, or you could go to a trainer and they'll say, okay, Annabelle, you missed this. Here is a cue there. What happened for you there? Um, they'll really help you clean up your work. I do also um, case consultations for other therapists. I do EFT supervision for other therapists, but I also participate in advanced um, training with colleagues, you know, peer supervision and consultation. So yes, just continuing to get mentored and trained. Um, I mean, if you really want to be a superior therapist, then you got to keep getting trained and you can, and it will show up. I mean, I, I really care about not just being a good therapist, but an amazing therapist. So that requires, you know, managing your skill set and making sure your skill set matches and your clients are going to teach you to grow and you're going to digest the model at different levels at different speeds just like your clients will digest your work together at different levels so I mean I just think it's and regardless even if you don't use EFT whatever model that you use it's important to continue to get trained yeah uh, as you say that that really resonates because I'm about the same thing I mean I'm watching I schedule two hours a tape a week to watch and it is incredible what you learn you know, I think that Rebecca's um, 10 video series, which is is marketed as a, as a complete therapy, I think it's one of the just best goal lines. You even see someone go through session by session with a, the, the couple to see how they handle blocks, to see how they handle repairs, to see how they keep their focus. Mm -hmm. um, it was really, really enlightening, especially in a field that is so blind. You know, I don't think there's any other field where no one knows what happens once you shut the door, right? <laughs> it's kind of just yeah. in a way. Um, and so, yeah, I think watching tapes is so beneficial. And so, you know, saying that, that you're yeah. about it, I'm like, yeah. And I think that you're, I think it can be learned. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's why your video series is so important. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's so many training videos out there. And, and that was the one thing I felt like we were starving for at the end of our master's program. And I find a lot of students tell me the same thing is that in grad school, they just kind of teach you a smattering of everything and you feel 
like you walked out with a whole lot of nothing. Like, okay, now I'm about to go to my first session. Now what? What do I do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's more than just talking to somebody about their problems. You have to know what to look for. You have to know what things mean. You have to be able to connect dots. You have to be with the person. I mean, there's so many processes going on in the therapy room at one time. And it's it can get overwhelming sometimes. And therapists get dysregulated. You know, sometimes you get those really angry clients and then suddenly they turn their uh, anger on you and you're now on the receiving end and they, you know, of course that feels terrible and it happens and you have to know how to handle it and people will challenge your, how long have you been in practice? How old are you? Can you really help me? <laughs> and it's not about you. It will feel like it's about you, but it's not really about you. It's people being scared and afraid that they're not going to get the help that they need and they desperately want it. So what kind of um, advice do you have for students coming out of a master's program, right? Most of my students are going to be coming out of a master's program pretty soon. Most of them won't go into a PhD program. So, you know, new therapists coming out and, and into the field, what is your best advice? My advice is pick a model and stick with it. <laughs> and if you haven't chosen a model, you know, maybe attend a few trainings of a couple different things, see what you like. But whatever you decide to choose, get highly trained in it. That's, that's a must, I think, first and foremost. And don't expect your master's program to teach you really how to be a great therapist. You know, and you don't have to wait till you graduate to start attending trainings either. You know, and there's a lot of discounts for students. So I started taking advantage of the trainings when I was a master's student and the the rates are highly discounted. And then once you get out and you're like an associate MFT or an intern, whatever they call it for state, yeah, it goes up. So get trained now. And then by the time you actually see your first client, you're going to feel so much more prepared. And that's, you want that feeling of, okay, I don't have to be afraid. And that's exactly what couples are looking for from you is in couples therapy. They want to know that somebody has a plan. They know what they're doing. They know where they're going and they're going to be able to get help. And when you can firmly and confidently say that they feel so safe with you. And then now you have a great rapport and now you can do the work that needs to be done. Yeah. I love it. So what do you think is on the frontier, right? Hmm. You know, I really don't know. It's it's tough to say. I'm seeing politics being influenced, um, therapy, I mean, therapy being influenced by politics, and some of it scares me, quite frankly, because I feel like we're undermining ourselves as a field. I mean, we're definitely creating more job security, <laughs> but yeah. I, yeah, I see some things that seem quite dangerous that go against the research that we have. And yet, because of societal pressure and societal norms changing, we're pressing for acceptance of things that we already know cause mental health issues and great distress. And yet, nobody feels like they can stand up and say anything because they're going to be accused of horrible things and nobody wants to be accused of that. So it's really sticky. So my hope is that we can come together more and connect more as a community and not be so divided. But we'll see it can start with me it can start with you and we connect with each other and right. connect with on, others. On, the, on the frontier of like therapy like like where do you think you know um will be an issue or a modality or an added piece that will be brought in right i had a lady on 
a few months ago who said, man, neurofeedback has changed her life. Um, and it's like, okay, maybe that's one of the things in the future that we need to be thinking about. I don't know. Oh, yeah. And I have an EFT colleague who does neurofeedback and EMDR. And neurofeedback, the machine itself is pretty expensive. <laughs> so I think it's like $20,000 to get the machine and training. So it's an investment, but it'll pay for itself. I think the good news is that neuroscience is merging with therapy. And so we're able to understand how what we do shapes the brain and that can help us further develop techniques and interventions, which is a great thing. And, you know, the attachment science is becoming more well-known. So more models of counseling are starting to incorporate the fundamentals of attachment, which is also a great thing. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of great stuff that's coming in to the field. Um, I think neuroscience is probably the new frontier. I am a little worried though. I, I, I think one day they're going to end up regulating coaching and there's, there's some kinds of um, trauma therapy that you don't even have to be a licensed clinician for. And that kind of worries me like the other EFT, the uh, emotional freedom technique, which is a tapping yeah. You know, um, you don't have to be a licensed therapist to do that, which to me is a little scary because these people haven't been trained, A, in ethics, and nobody's holding them to any ethical standards, um, but they also may not be adequately knowledgeable about what they're dealing with um, because they, they've only had limited training and limited scope. So I think they need to those other models that are coming out need to be put under the umbrella of licensed practitioners. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Okay. And uh, last question before I turn the floor over to you. What are you reading now? What's on your, your bedside table? Or? Well, I'm somebody who prefers movies over books. <laughs> so uh, I did get, Sue Johnson's most recent book, uh, Attachment Theory and Practice. Is that, is that out yet? I think it was coming yeah. out soon. It must have yeah. just, just, like, just came out. It just came out. Yeah. So I have that. I have Lori Brubaker's book, Stepping into Emotionally Focused Therapy. And my book that I have for pleasure is, I think it's called When I Turn 100, and it's Interviews with Centennials. Um, <laughs> that sounds I, awesome. Yeah, it's a really cool book. I picked it up in the airport, and I... Um, my husband and I have a lot of friends that are uh, in their 70s and 80s, and I love them. They're, they're my peeps. <laughs> they really are. I love hanging out with them, and I myself have a goal of living to be 100, so, um, and I'm fascinated with the stories of the older generations because I think they have so much wisdom to offer, so, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Okay. Well, look, is, um, where can students find more about you? Uh, they can go to my website, lasvegasmarriagecounseling.com. I will be coming out with my own separate brand, um, more of a national level thing versus a localized. Uh, it might be like drbell.com or something, Annabelle Bugatti MFT, something like that. I don't. I have a few domains, but I haven't quite decided how I want to brand myself aside from my practice. So, but that is my new project is working on, since I just got my PhD last year, I'm working on branding myself so that I can stretch my wings and do other things than just sit in the therapist chair. 
but for now you can find me on my practice website which is lasvegasmarriagecounseling.com okay well look thank you so much for your time i've enjoyed it thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it it's been such an honor to talk to you and to all your students and you know if they have any questions anyone has any questions don't hesitate to give me a buzz and i'd uh, be happy to talk to anyone awesome